the answer is it depends, but I think it depends on your role on this pull request, right? So imagine that I'm maintainer of an open source and I'm taking something in from a person that's not from the repo, I would be extra careful. So perhaps I would try to run the code. Usually I don't really test the code, but again, if something that I'm, I feel that's really critical and I want to be sure that's hundred percent working, I might test it. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. Sourcegraph is universal code search to let you move fast, even in big code bases. Here's CTO and co-founder Byung Lu explaining how Sourcegraph helps you to get into that ideal state of flow in coding. The ideal state of software development is really being in that state of flow. It's that state where all the relevant context and information that you need to build whatever feature or bug that you're focused on uh, building or fixing at the moment, that's all readily available. Now the question is, how do you get into that state where you know you don't know anything about the code necessarily that you're going to modify? That's where Sourcegraph comes in. And so what you do with Sourcegraph is you, you jump into Sourcegraph, it provides a single uh, portal into that universe of code. You search for the string literal, the pattern, whatever it is you're looking for, you dive right into the, the specific part of code that you want to understand. And then you have all these code navigation capabilities, jump to definition, find references that work across repository boundaries that work without having to clone the code to your local machine and set up and mess around with editor config and, and all that. Everything is just designed to be seamless and to aid in that task of you know code spelunking or, or source diving. And once you've acquired that understanding, then you can hop back in your editor, dive right back into that flow state of, hey, all the information I need is readily accessible. Let me just focus on writing the code that implements the feature or fixes the bug that I'm working on. All right, learn more at sourcegraph.com and also check out their bi-monthly virtual series called DevTool Time covering all things dev tools at sourcegraph.com slash dev tool time. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to go time. Your source for diverse discussions from all around the go community. Subscribe to the pod. If you haven't yet, head to gotime.fm for all the ways. And if you dig the show, please do tell your friends. That'd be pretty cool. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for shipping all of our pods super fast to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. And to our friends at Fly.io. Host your app servers close to your users. No ops required. Learn more at Fly.io. Okay, here we go. Good part of the day to everyone, wherever you're joining from. Uh, here's Angelica and I. We are back to talk about pull requests. Uh, hi, Angelica. How are you doing? Ooh, I'm very, very well, thank you. I didn't think the PRs would take two episodes, but I'm surprised and excited that they will. As everything about pull requests always takes a bit longer than expected, huh? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Today, we are joined by Anderson. Hello. Hi, how are you doing, Anderson? I am really, really good. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. And you are joining us from the UK. Exactly. What are you doing in the UK? I'm at the GoFreeCon UK. So I'm a Brazilian that's based in Berlin, but now I'm here in London, directly from a hotel room. How are you liking it? Oh, it's really good. Yeah. And you're not just saying that because I'm on the call. <laughs> no, no. Okay, good. I love the UK. I did an exchange program here for one year and a half in Glasgow. Oh, awesome. So, yeah, I really like it. 
I mean, I prefer Edinburgh to Glasgow, unpopular opinion. Yeah, true. I mean, Edinburgh Castle is so incredible. Wait, no, that's the end of the show. Oh, I'm sorry, getting ahead of myself, <laughs> Natalie. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fun to go back to in-person conferences, hmm? Yeah, that's true. It's really, really good. Last time that I was here in London, my brother was here. We were like, okay, the, the place here is going to be small to go for con UK at some point, but then the pandemic, and now I think it's smaller. So yeah, let's see. <laughs> okay. So Anderson, tell us about yourself. You're doing Go. Yeah, I'm doing Go since a bit before going to Berlin. So I think about five years now. I did before many, many Java was a lot of Java. I started with C actually some Python JavaScript in the back end and now go, I love it. And then I choose as my language to specialize. And you're working at Elastic. Exactly. I work with the Elastic agent. Which is the head product for all the products that we know and love, like Elasticsearch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Formerly known as the Elk stack. Yeah. Now the Elastic stack. Yeah. Lots of go there. I love this uh, There is, yeah. stack. Fun. And uh, so as part of the jobs, you do pull requests. Of course. Do you also do merge requests? We call everything for request. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to do the same thing you did last night where you caught us all off guard with the many no, different, no, no. just for those <laughs> the many different ways to refer to it? It's crazy how many ways there, how many names is this, are there for this? Yeah. For those who are listening now and have not listened to the previous episode uh, to the art of pull request part one, Angelica and I were discussing, among other things, also the many different names and what concepts that represents. So, Anderson, we asked you if you're doing lots of pull requests, but then we started talking about other things. Um, yeah. Do you? I do. Do you review more or do you write more? Now I write more. Mm -hmm. My past job, I read a lot more code, mm -hmm. a lot for requests. And funny enough, I've never worked in a company that didn't have pull requests. To me, software development as a professional means pull requests and code review. Mm -hmm. That's my standard. Why did you do more reading in your past? Sure. Is it just a very different area you were working in? No, my past company, I joined, among other things, to help to lead the transition to Go, mm. right? So they were pretty much a, a Ruby shop and they decided to migrate to Go. They were migrating, but they needed someone with expertise in Go, you know, to bring best practices, how to do. So as that, I did a lot of workshops and, you know, kind of teaching mentoring and involved a lot of the teams would come to me with pull requests. So I do like do a, like a really extensive review, not only code practice functionality, but also as an opportunity to teach Go and the, the standards, the conventions, the best practices. And then now you've moved to somewhere where Go is bigger, so therefore you don't have to play such such a big kind of reviewer role. Exactly. And now I am as a soft engineer, right, as a senior, but there I was like a tech lead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think when you go above senior and in tackling and stuff, you start coding less, reading more, writing more, right? Okay. I mean, writing more specifications and documentations. So do you feel like there's a direct correlation between seniority and how much reading of PR versus writing you do? Like if we were to plot it on a graph, yeah. <laughs> how much you read PRs, how much you write, could we like to generalize the industry say that the more senior you are, the less you're going to be writing PRs and the more you're going to be reviewing them. I think the more you're a senior, you're going to look for more things, mm -hmm. right? So because you're going to be able to evaluate if you're good in the language, you can evaluate the language, the conventions, right? You can evaluate the general soft architecture. 
right? When you're in a role that as a senior, you are also a mentor, there is a lot of like mid and juniors in the team. I think we're reading a lot because you have this responsibility with the team, with the product. But if you're in a company where everyone's senior, senior, in Berlin, definitely the titles are inflated. So, you know, perhaps everyone is, doesn't need this level of attention in mentoring or teaching mm -hmm. that happens a lot through PRs. That's an interesting question, yeah, because some time ago they added this like graph of contributions that is no longer just the squares, but also what type do you read more? Do you make yeah. more issues? Do you review and so on? So oh, if you can look at that, then you kind of know what people's roles are or see how it changes over time or something. If I showed you a load of graphs, would you be able to guess the seniority of that engineer? Perhaps. I think I looked quickly at mine and now it was 50-50. Nice. Okay. Pretty much. Do you think that that's the balance that most engineers would like? Or do you think that there is such thing as someone who prefers to be reviewing more than writing? I think when you think as a software engineer that the passion is about writing, writing, right? They write, write code. I think at least either you want or you need to pass mm. knowledge forward, right? So you're going to need to write, to read. I really like to review code for both reasons, right? One, because I, I, mean, I have a passion for Go and I am a quite methodic person. So I like to ensure that the code is good, is the conventions are there. I'm super big about proper error handling. So these are some things that I mean, if you're not handling the errors properly or you're really, really bad at the conventions, I'm going to be commenting there. But I have like a special way of commenting to ensure that I'm not overwhelming the other person or to feel like, you know, just complaining, saying that your job's bad. So you say you try to give feedback. You don't want to overwhelm the person. How do you do that? Like, is it that you limit yourself to, okay, I'm only going to put six comments? Is it the way in which you phrase your review? How do you make sure that you're not overwhelming? Yeah, I learned to, to experience any feedback. I put tags, right? So I start with PR with like suggestion or sometimes I put question, but a question is a question, right? You know, so it feels a bit redundant, but I put, and then I have a blocker. Right. And sometimes like suggestion slash go convention, right? Or depending on the repo, blocker slash go convention, you know. So I, I try to categorize suggestion, question, and blocker. I put blocker ish. So basically blocker is either I see there is a problem in the code, right? So it needs a change. Or I believe there is a problem, or I don't believe that this implementation is good. So at least you need to answer that. Right. You can say like, I disagree with you, that's fine, but I need an explanation, right? So these are the blockers. Suggestions exactly that, like, I believe it can be better. If I would in war writing this code, I would do different, but you don't have to take it. Sometimes I bought, I put like a knit. It can be, you know, just erase this blank line between the function call and the error handling, right? This is a knit, right? Or typo, so these things, and then if I, I've never reviewed a PR from this person, or perhaps if I see there is a lot of comments, I go to the person, or even the PR, I put, look, there is these three categories. The only thing that's really important are the blockers. So the blockers, please comment or change. The suggestions are suggestions. And as always, you are free to disagree 100%, right? Just answer the blockers and talk to me. That's how I do. So you say that in some situations, it kind of makes sense to just speak in person instead of writing a lot, for example. Sometimes it's easier. I think sometimes speaking is better. Sometimes writing is better. 
and on pull request, right on the pull request is a lot slower, right? So sometimes it's worth jumping on a Slack chat is already enough. Sometimes we talk. I think nowadays at Elastic, because we are distributed, is a lot more through Slack rather than really a call. But sometimes yeah, I've jumped on a call for small things. And how do you decide when it's better to do this and when it's better to not? Like, what is, do you have a thumb roll or is it all just feeling? If there is a lot of back and forth, it's easier to jump on a call or something that I really want to understand. But most of the times, I guess, I always could handle on the chat. Now, Elastic is a distributed company, right? So we write a lot more. So it's a lot more common just to write than jump on a call. I think jumping on a call is more personal. So I feel if we're close to someone, it's easier. You know, it feels more natural to jump on a call. And if you don't, don't know the person so well or something, you kind of end up just chatting. So you say there's actually three types of uh, kind of giving feedback. One, writing in the pull request, two, writing on Slack, and three, hopping on a call. Yeah. But on Slack, I use it more to clarify, mm -hmm. right? Because if it's specific about the code I'd rather have on the pull request, I kind of documented anyway, right? Mm -hmm. I try also to explain why, what I'm saying. Like, as I said, in my past company, I was like, really with this job to teach, to, to mentor and go, mm -hmm. I would link a lot of reference, right? Also because I learned in another company, I remember my colleague and I were reviewing a pull request of a new joiner. You know, and say like, oh yeah, this function is too long. This function is too complex, right? This happens. And the guy was like, why? Why did you butcher my pull request? Yeah, you're guessing. This is your opinion. <laughs> and I was like, that's true, right? We don't have like a metric mm -hmm. to say that. But also it was a common sense between us. So yeah, this is too big, you know, in the company. But this guy was a new joint. So everything was different from him. So I guess, yeah, clarifications... I can do outside the pull request, but I think it's important to document what's happening in the code there. Mm -hmm. In the code itself to kind of document, to make it self-explanatory. Exactly. So in terms of kind of, you talked about kind of giving feedback, not overwhelming. Do you feel like PRs are also a good place to kind of, especially for more junior engineers, give them like props on things they're doing well? Like, oh, I really like the way you did this thing. Or, oh, this is great. Or this function structured really well. Do you feel like PRs are also a way to give positive feedback? Yeah, I think it is. It is important. And it's something that I would like to do more as well. I mean, I, I never go to a pull request to looking for errors or to try to diminish someone's job. But at the same time, I go to a pull request looking for errors so they don't go to production, right? At the end of the day, we're looking for problems and issues to prevent things bad to go into production, right? But I think it's super important to do the praise, to, to assert when someone does something nice. Sometimes someone just fix something a bit random, but, you know, it's the same function. It's not really going away from the aim of the pull request. And then it, this is really good to, to praise, at least a thumbs up. So we said that there are some stages that you escalate the communication to some way, um, and definitely you want to include more like positive feedback that is not a correct this and so on, or explain yourself. What other changes would you make like to the PR process based on pain points you have with the flow? It's a really slow process mm -hmm. because you write the code and then you submit the PR, mm -hmm. right? And then someone else says, sometimes more than one person, they have to stop and read it. And how do you synchronize that? 
And then I think it's going to depend a lot how companies do. I've worked with a different process, right? Some process, they ensure that you, the pull request would be revealed, some not so often, right? Now I'm definitely overwhelmed by GitHub notifications. So sometimes it just, it slips through some PRs and then I get like days later, someone tagging me, Anderson, can you give me a, a re-review? Like, oh my God, sorry. Because it's something that's uh, kind of a bit of a ping pong or does it happen more with new pull requests? And now it's only would have to re-review, right? You, you do the first review and then you have to look again. Yeah. Right. So to get the proper ping, mm. it's hard. And the other thing that, at least on GitHub, right? I, I've used a bit of Bitbucket as well. Mm-hmm. I submit one, perhaps two PRs should go to the Go repo. So we've got it. But on GitHub is really hard. When you do the first review, ask for changes, and then the people do changes to see exactly what changed, right? To get and be able, okay, I'm going to review just the changes. Isn't this a new copy? And if someone just force... Oh, force push, okay. If someone's a force push, right? So sometimes it's hard to get like just the bit that they have to re-review. That's a pain point. Yeah, I had a Twitter poll the other day on the what do you do when the pull request stretches so much and there's one million comments that lead to one million commits. Do you squash that or not? And uh, I think the answer that I liked most was uh, during the pull request, have as many commits as needed. And once it's going to go merged, then squash it all into a readable one or two commits or however many logically needed. But exactly to allow the proper review, like you say, as many commits as needed. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a good practice. So you kind of chatted a little bit about your love of Go, and this is a Go podcast, but I would love to hear a little bit about your approach to PRs in other languages, i.e. does the way that you review PRs differ depending on the language you're reviewing? I think they do differ most because of their expertise, right? I'm quite comfortable in Go to understand the language and understand what's happening, right? to know some caveats, some catches, and also to talk about conventions. In other languages, not so much. So I guess in other languages, I am going to focus more on general soft architecture because this is general thing and functionality. And of course, try to use as much as I know from the language convention, right? I think that's another thing. Pull requests are great, great to learn language conventions. So I've learned so much about conventions in Go in the other language to pull requests. And then that's it. If I'm not so expert, I'm going to try to put and point the best that I know, but I know that I'm not the expert. And a lot of the times it's probably not really my repo, right? So I'm not there to enforce anything. So they're going to be more on the suggestion side. I mean, taking it kind of one step more granular, are there things that are more important for Go when you're reviewing, i.e. like stylistic choices, almost principles that you might adhere to more closely than you would in other languages? I mean, Go is opinionated. You have to use GoFund. You have to format the code properly, even though we still have some space to discuss about how to format. But I think that's the first thing. I usually would like to, to be super strict about how the imports are sorted, but I am not. Wait, if the rep is consistent, I think it's a lot easier to, to enforce this thing. If it isn't, not so much. And in other languages, they don't have so much. So it's going to be more about team convention rather than the language. And in Go, you get a lot from the language. I haven't seen so much, but because Go, there is so, it's so focused, let's say, right, in, in concurrence. Sometimes people try to 
either sneaking concurrency when they shouldn't or they are not using the right tools. Also because, you know, ah, concurrency, let's use channels. No, channels, they, they, you know, they are for something. Mutex, they are for other things. Weight groups, they are for other things, right? So this is another thing that I would say, okay, no, perhaps we can do different or we can do better, right? Or this is too complex to understand. If you use, I don't know, if you remove this chain and put an a weight group, it's a lot easier. And you all, do you want a barrier weight group, right? Chain is probably not. So I think these things. When there are new features and new things released in Go, do we see an uptick in people using those in PRs? <laughs> I feel like you just get like you just get overexcited, like oh generics. Every PR now has generics. I always wanted to push <laughs> the new things and use the new as soon as possible. I think in general, if you're working with microservices, it's a lot easier, right? Because you can just update the version and redeploy, and even if something breaks, you can roll back a lot easier. Now at Elastic, that you're distributing binaries, that you're gonna go to. I don't know how many clients in the whole world. So our we have a release cycle, right? So we have to choose, okay, let's change the, the version. We have several repos that use Go and you try to keep everyone in the same version. So it's a slower process. But as much as I can and as much as I know already what's coming up, I try to incorporate if I can. Oh, on that topic, have you folks started to use any instead of the empty interface? <laughs> It's been an interesting poll to write. Uh, I don't know if you can phrase that as an unpopular opinion somehow. Don't use that or something. It can be one more unpopular opinion for your <laughs> stash. Your library that we're soon going to have. <laughs> I think I saw the first use of it today in the workshop with Bill Kennedy. So he his code had an any. I was like, oh, yeah, right. We can use any now. <laughs> what was the use case that he used? was a map okay. for logger. Okay. The map string empty interface. Uh-huh. I think it was in a log or something. I know, I think he was parsing a JSON. And so instead of map string empty interface, it was map string any. Okay. Well, we can do the poll and then tag Bill and be like, please tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Give us the example so we can all understand how you use this. Yeah. He was asking everyone to have Go18 because of that. He was like, okay, you're going to use any, so please. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is a reliability platform for every developer. Incidents are a win, not an if situation, and they impact everyone in the organization, not just SREs. And I'm here with Robert Ross, founder and CEO of Fire Hydrant. Robert, what is it about teams getting distracted by incidents and not being able to focus on the core product that upsets you? I think that incidents bring a lot of anxiety and sometimes fear and maybe even a level of shame that can cause this paralysis in an organization from progress. And when you have the confidence to manage incidents at any scale of any variety, everyone just has this breath of fresh air that they can go build the core product even more. I don't know if anyone's had the, the opportunity, maybe is the word, uh, to call the fire department. But no matter what, when the fire department shows up, it doesn't matter if the building is hugely on fire. They are calm, cool and collected because they know exactly what they're going to do. And that's what Fire Hydrant is built to help people achieve. Very cool. Thank you, 
Robert, if you want to operate as a calm, cool, collected team when incidents happen, you got to check out Fire Hydrant. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all the features, no credit card required to sign up. Get started at firehydrant.com. Again, firehydrant.com. What do you do when you have a very large pull request? Lots of files, lots of comments, lots of lines. I sit and cry. How do you get on top of that? No, I. that's a tough one. I try to review at once. Sometimes it's not possible. I think there's no, no magic. You just have to go through it, right? Do you review everything on a high level, kind of, you know, see the list of the commits if they tell some story or maybe look at the list of the no. files or do you just dive to the first one and one by one until it starts making sense? I never look at the commits. I don't know if because when I'm coding and committing, I, I'm going to squash everything before morning, like first things first. So to me, the commits itself, they don't matter so much. I try to put in a way if I need to revert something. Right, I do, but at the end of the day, there's a good chance that I'm going to just, just do one commit. So I never look at the, neither the rap commit history, only if I need to understand why it happened. But in a pull request, I never look at the commit history, just look at the diff and it's always on GitHub. And look at the files by the name, basically. The big ones I just, you know, go clicking, I've seen this file, I've seen this file. Mm. So just by the order of appearance, because sometimes it's not always the correct flow, kind of. Yeah, if it's hard to understand, I get the code, I check out the the feature branch and I go to see, because also sometimes you'll see, you know, there are more stuff going on. You want to jump, you want to understand how it was called or something, and then it's easier on an IDE when you have the code. And also if you want to suggest a change. So either something really simple, I'm 100% sure that it works, or I'm going to probably write it in the code itself and it might test it, right? To do not suggest something that it's broken. Maybe even a few steps back. When you go to read the review of pull request, do you start by reading the issue? So the first thing you do is read the issue. Yeah, I have to understand what's happened there. Then do you review it, the diff on GitHub or in your ID? No, on GitHub. So you go kind of file by file on GitHub. I never... <laughs> no, you know, because philosophical questions. Good point. Because to me, the, the review, actually going back to the, the other episode, hey, we are doing code review. No, it's not the pull request so much, right? What's happening? <laughs> you have to comment on it, right? So it's really hard to comment on it, in, at least for the tools that I use, that's GitHub and the IDE. It's hard to comment on the code. If it's something that for some reason, you know, when you do either a greenfield project or the pull request is a huge refactor. You know, everything changed, so pretty much new code. So on that rare occasions, I might open the code itself, right? Because then I can read in like an execution order, let's say. And then my comments, they are probably going to be comments on the code itself. And then I, I've done it, I don't know, once or twice. And then I create my branch out of this branch, and then I open up a request for this branch so the person can see my comments in the code without having to look or look for it. But this was pretty much in either Greenfield projects, you know, when you start something new, or when you're just adding so much new code, 
that the pull request itself, it's hard because it's complete out of road and everything. And there is a lot to comment on. Yeah, that's the hardest ones, right? When there's so, so much to handle there. Yeah. Do you sometimes find yourself rereading the whole thing to kind of once to read it and second time to make sense? Oh, yeah. No, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think, yeah, going back to like old goal time when you talk about documentation, reading documentation, mm-hmm. I have the perseverance. If I'm not understanding, I'm going to read it over and over and over again. And I'm going to do my best to understand. If I don't, I'm going to ask. Right? But I think if someone thinks puzzling me, then I'm probably going to block, say, look, I think this is important. I don't get it. Please explain. Yeah. Do you comment as you go or do you read through fully, digest, and then go through and do all your, your comments? No, no. I comment as I go, like as I stream. Okay. And then... When I get down there, I was like, oh yeah, that's the why. So I go back and delete the comment. Oh, okay. You, you know, it's like, dude, it doesn't make sense. You know, or something like that. Or, why? How does it work? And then you read it. Oh. <laughs> and then I go back, delete and edit the comments. Go back. Oh, I'm so sorry. Never mind. <laughs> I mean, on GitHub, you don't submit a review, right? Yeah. So I just delete. But the feel is exactly that. I mean, apologizing for asking something stupid. Yeah. <laughs> When you're going over a PR, do you feel like, or any reviewer, should test the changes? And to what extent should you test the changes if you think that they should be tested by the reviewer? I think that's the one million dollar question. Give us the answer. We're ready. Maybe another <laughs> popular opinion. No, I think the answer is it depends, right? Okay. <laughs> we say a lot that at Elastic. But I think it depends on your role on this pull request, right? So if... Imagine that I'm maintainer of an open source and I'm taking something in from a person that's not from the repo, I would be extra careful. So perhaps I would try to run the code. Usually I don't really test the code, right? But again, if something that I'm, I feel that's really critical and I want to be sure that's hundred percent working, I might test it, but it's rare cases. Okay. And does the length of the PR or the scope of the change change that opinion yeah okay i think the length not so much and let's be honest the longer the pr the less detailed is the review mm-hmm. we are humans you get tired yeah come on like <laughs> if you're reviewing like 15 20 files the last one you're tired like it's just human thing right mm-hmm. and then it's something that i've done a few times i don't like it but it happens like longer prs i review and then i submit and then when I'm doing the re-review, I find new things. I'm like, oh, I can't let it pass. I'm going to have to put a comment where there wasn't a comment and it was not changed because now I saw it, right? Mm-hmm. That's the thing. So given that, what is a reasonable time to expect a PR review? If you like put in a PR today, is it the next hour, the, like by end of day, the next day, a week? Does it depend? The real answer is it depends. Now I've got ahead of you there, I knew. Yeah. <laughs> My first job, we... Did we use Jira? I mean, whatever. We used columns, right? Uh-huh. We used columns. So there was the column PR review. So the open PRs were there for review. And then there could be, I think we're three people. Mm-hmm. So there could be only two PRs on review. So do you want to put something for review? We have to take something to review. All right? So this happened, helped to keep the, you know, the process running, everyone reviewing. Uh-huh. Nowadays, like, I think when you're really running agile startup, microservice, you know, just deploy, uh-huh. you usually expect something at, in the next day to get an answer. 
Now the last sec, we think the week, I'd say. Okay. And do you have different commitments when it comes to internally, like your internal team PRs versus people who are maybe contributing to your service? I.e. like in our system, we have a lot of external teams that will contribute to our service and ask for PR reviews. Like what is a reasonable timeline to commit to review those external PRs? I think there are two ca categories, right? If it's just a normal flow, mm -hmm. they go in the same flow. But if it's something that someone external is doing because our team doesn't have capacity and then it is really important, mm -hmm. right? Probably I'll try to prioritize this review. Mm -hmm. But also, if someone that's not from the, the team or doesn't know the rapper conventions, it's probably going to be a more thorough review. I, I strongly believe that at least your code should be consistent, right? I'd rather have something that I don't like, but it's consistent and it's always there, than half of the code I like, half of the code I don't like, and another third, they don't even have an op opinion. Uh -huh. So in external reviews, I think there's the extra consistent thing in code conventions from the repo that you, you have to put through. And then it should be, I mean, it's better to be quicker. Mm -hmm, for sure. I really like that column policy. I might have to implement that on my team. Yeah, right. <laughs> you can't put a PR on if they're already two. You have to review them. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes things I love that. to move. I, I think it's nice. I agree. It's a weight group. That's, we pretty much describe this concept now. It's a channel with a buffer. It's a <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then I'm going to have to be the bad girl who comes into Slack and someone's like, oh, I'm ready to put my PR on this big new feature. And I'm like, you're not allowed to. Counterful. Go review Bob's PR. Throwing error. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's the, like the poking PR review. You, you only get your PR reviewed when you poke someone, right? You don't want that. <laughs> Exception. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's going to be a fun way of teaching uh, all sorts of Go concepts now that uh, this gave me some ideas. Thank you. What, doing a PR review? By poking people? Yeah, with limiting this. This is a, like ah. a fun way to, to discuss this. And on the way, you discuss errors, throwing and correct errors, and also exceptions and so on. Okay. Go routines if you suddenly have to split into that, yeah. Talking about teaching Go in unusual ways, I was thinking today someone should write a Go program that simulates how the queue for the food works here and then make a proper Go concurrent good program for that because the queue is unnecessary here, right? We have a lot of contingents. I was like, you know, you can make better concurrency here. Because <laughs> you have lots of food stations that people miss. That's the point. You have a lot of food stations. You can have a lot of concurrent access to that. But no, you get sequential. You get a huge queue and everyone goes through everything that they don't want. I don't know, like, I think because we're just out of the... They didn't read the docs. They don't know what's the food. They didn't read the docs, exactly. <laughs> Everything can be explained with thick. Lesson learned. Always read the docs first. <laughs> and if they're bad docs, then... Improve them. Improve them. Open up a request for the docs. Yes. <laughs> That's something that I love. If I'm reading documentation that it's easy to open a pull request and to see a failure or inconsistent or something... I opened the pull request. I think it's such a valuable contribution and so easy mm -hmm. most of the times. I love these docs that they have like the button edit and then you go direct to GitHub to create a pull request. It's fantastic. Yeah. I feel like I get into a bit of a like rabbit hole. I had to stop myself editing documentation because uh, it went from actually like making it correct to actually just like implying my personal stylistic choices when writing documentation and phrasing like i like this adjective slightly better actually 
back. Oh, yeah. So I had to pull back to be like, okay, review for correctness, not for like, I want a comma here. <laughs> I think that's so hard. Like, and for me, as a non-native speaker, mm. sometimes like, I don't think this sentence is correct. I think it's missing a comma. I think it's missing an article. And I was like, honestly, you don't know English so much. <laughs> I don't even know if you could do that in like proper Portuguese, like a proper grammar. But I think it's important. My take is, if I believe it's compromising their understanding, I'm going to probably suggest something, right? And also, sometimes when the comment is there for a long time, I just, I make the change and suggest someone is going to review that's it. I sometimes put into some AI, if I don't understand something and I read two, three times and I keep staring at it, I'm like, just explain that to me in other words. And that helps. Good AI. <laughs> it's like pinging somebody, but yeah. But also make the changes just like you, because I think if I'm as a non-native, don't understand this, there must be another non-native that gets lost there. Yeah. And clarity is important. Um, let's say you're interviewing, whether you are the candidate or you are the interviewing um, person. And part of the interview is reviewing a pull request from somebody from your team. What tips do you have for somebody to do this well? Actually, never been really on these shoes mm -hmm. neither side i've been asked oh yeah in one of your code bases any of your code base what you do change or something i think at the end of the day a lot of the time we to interview for culture fit right and a person that's nice it's good to work with this is super important so i think is if you are on, on an interview just be sure to be nice Right in your comments and everything, don't go like, oh yeah, this is crap, this is bad. Just be nice, be polite, link documentations, and our advisor do bring arguments. Right, don't say okay, do that or change that or this need change without a reason. Right, if an interview, usually in the interview, you don't have so much time. Right, so I would go for oh yeah. You know, this name is not ideal. You know, the goal, effective goal, there is a section on name convention that explain why it should be like that. So as it's in goal, it's better to be like that. So try always to, to bring something to support your views. And when it's opinion, and that's something that I really do on pull requests. When it's like, it's my opinion, I say like, look, this is my opinion. I believe that's better because this, this, and this is up to you because I don't see a flaw here. I just think it can be better, but any opinion if you were interviewing someone and their task was to review a pr what would be things that they did that would maybe be like oh no i don't know about that i think it would be to be aggressive right and impolite to just diminish the code and say like the code's bad or something in an interview if they really they show that they know don't know what they're doing i think if you interview people you know some people they don't know what they're doing or just trying to fool you, mm -hmm. right? If it's such to see that, it's like, oh, oh, no, no. It's better to say you don't know. It's not like that. It's like, great, just go. And I, I, you know, I just, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. It's just an incentivize. Yeah, go, go, please. And then, then, oh, yeah, thank you very much. You're going to be in contact. <laughs> yeah, and definitely staying honest is a lot better than making things up. Yeah, please say I don't know. I think if someone to me in an interview say, look, I don't know, I don't remember, Oh, I don't know. And I think in that place I can get information. Dude, folk, you're like scoring a hundred points with me. If you're trying to just BS me through, nah. That's fair. Anderson will not be having that.
This episode is brought to you by our friends at Chronosphere. Scaling Cloud Native is complicated, and Chronosphere helps teams take back control of observability, tame rampant data growth, reduce Cloud Native complexity, and increase confidence of the business. And I'm here with Martin Mal, co-founder and CEO of Chronosphere. Martin, when it comes to Cloud Native observability, what are the pain points of Kubernetes and making sure it's reliable? You know, I think the shift to Kubernetes has really changed the way we design applications. It's changed the way we, it's changed our infrastructure as well. So it's introduced a lot of change, I would say, and that's probably why it's causing a lot of issues in the observability space. I think one thing we're finding is that a lot of companies out there are focused on producing a lot more data and there's a lot of focus on more metrics, more traces, more logs, because these environments we're trying to monitor are far more complex these days. I think that's maybe one of the mistakes the industry is running into. And it's interesting because obviously for all the solutions out there, the vendors out there, the more data that gets produced, the better it is for all of the vendors out there. Um, but what, what's interesting is that along with that increased volume of data, people aren't actually getting better outcomes out of it. People's number of incidents that people are running to is still rising. Um, people's MTTRs, MTTDs, mean time to detection and resolution is actually getting higher as opposed to lower. So I think this is the common state that a lot of companies find themselves in. And of course, with the increased volume of data, folks' bills increase and, and the problem actually gets harder. So I think that's a common state we find a lot of companies into. And this is probably why it's top of mind for a lot of companies out there. Very cool. Thank you, Martin. All right. The next step is to head to chronosphere.io to explore the platform and get a demo again. Chronosphere.io. So we kind of touched on this a little earlier in the episode, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. In fact, I will ask you a question first. Are you engaged in any kind of open source projects? I know you said that you, you know, contribute to Go a little. Is that a world in which you feel like you have engaged and put PRs in? So I can cheat my answer, right? Okay. Yeah, as I'm involved in open source, because I work at Alaska, I'm, the majority of our repos are open source, right? <laughs> But as a 100% open source contributor that I'm not working for the company, no, I read you. It's something that I always wanted. Mm -hmm. I just said, like, I, I managed to get a committer to in Go, but I haven't fully got to participate in a project. Mm -hmm. I still try. Oh, no, did I, I think I got one on Kubernetes, too. You see, like, it's one of my goals. You know, mm -hmm. these plans that things you want to do also after you try a bit, yeah, you know, yeah. it goes back and forth. I mean, I go for corn again. Perhaps, you know, the flame just is like lighting up again. Reignite that passion. That's what's going to happen. But yeah, no, I'm not really engaged on, let's say, an external open source project. That's not part of my daily job. And when you have done it, is part of the reason why you think it's difficult to engage fully? Is anything to do with that to do with like the difficult or the different process to put in a PR when it is an open source project? as opposed to internal, like within work PR reviews and submission? I think to me, what's always difficult, like to find something meaningful to work, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes you don't know what you can do. There is a tag first good issue and so on, but I think we're a lot, I think, yeah, that's the point. We're lost and you don't have someone to go, oh, please help me, Yeah. right? Or I tried that, or shall I do that? 
right? Because my project and my team are comfortable to go and do a refactor. Yeah. If it's like a complete external project that I don't know anyone there or anything, mm-hmm. I'm going to be afraid, you know? And sometimes you're not, not even able to run the, the project. So that I think that's a lot of the barrier thing. If you would have something, not necessarily a mentor, but, you know, perhaps like a channel, ask questions. Right? Okay, like, oh, I want to get... Even that, like, say, oh, I want to take this issue. Because sometimes the good first issues, they open like one year ago. I was like, dude, I don't know if it's worth to fix that or not. And then you open the pull request, you fix everything. No one reviews. Mm-hmm. And then you think, no one reviews. Nothing got stale. You get demotivated. Yeah. Fair enough. And do you think there's a higher bar as to what you're willing to put in as a PR for an open source project? I speak about this from my own personal like experience when I was trying to get into like, okay, I want to contribute to open source. Oh, you should just go in and do like a little change. But I was like, yeah, but I feel like I'm contributing it to an open source library where everyone can see. And they're like, oh, Angelica made like a one line change or like change that one function name. I think and if I talk for myself, mm-hmm. I always had the feeling to contribute to open source projects, the bar is super high. Yeah. You have to be like an expert developer and everything. And the reality is no. Mm-hmm. Right. And the issue is there, the problem exists. I think this is the best advice I can do to any junior developer. Just go for it. They know you already have, right? So your change is not there. The bug is not fixed. Mm-hmm. The documentation is not proved. The feature is not there. Right? So this is not going to change. If your change didn't get there, you learn something. You, you play different new technology. I was trying to submit pull requests for the Kubernetes code, just fixing leading issues. I understand a bit how the, that piece of code worked. And it was like, oh, how they structured that? And like, look at the packages. Because I had to read through the packages to fix leading issues. Mm-hmm. I think one PR got merged. The other ones got stale. That's life. It happens. And I learned something. Yep. So try go for it let the other one say no it's not your job to say no for you right it's their job that is a popular opinion i bet <laughs> applies to many fields in life that's true just do it yes try yeah well done all right the fun part unpopular opinion before we started the recording, Anderson, you mentioned you have uh, several unpopular opinions and you were wondering whether you should go for the most... Yeah. How did you phrase that? I forget. You used a good word. The most... Controversial? Yeah, exactly. Or the least controversial. Yeah. Now I'm taking... I'm picking a controversial one. Yeah. Right? But I can explain. As I said on the PR, you can explain. You should not write more than 100 columns. Right? In writing your code, your code should not really pass a hundred columns. From width. Yeah. First things, there's no magic numbers like a hundred cut. I would say a hundred and ten, it's okay when it's really bad to cut. Right? A hundred and twenty is almost a hard limit. Don't really go over that. Why? First things first. Do you read books on landscape? No. <laughs> right? Come on, I think everyone had that, right? You got like this email, right? You're like in your four key or whatever monitor and that thing goes from side to side and you're reading for the listeners. I'm <laughs> moving my head as, you know, reading from one side to the other. Like you're watching tennis. You feel like, you know, a typewriter <laughs> that goes from side. <laughs> so it, it's hard to read, right? Because we don't read in landscape, we read in portrait. 
The second thing is not everyone has got ice cream as big as yours. There are people coding in 14, 13 inches, right? They want to have two tabs open perhaps. So if you go much more than 100, it's going to be bad for some people. And I believe for everyone, too long is hard to read. So that's my unpopular opinion. I want to disappoint you that I think I agree with you. And I even take this into writing emails that uh, I try to keep that. I don't know how many characters that is, but uh, I sometimes break lines, like one sentence into three, four lines, just so it stays. So you don't have to scroll in case. Yeah. Images, logos, I don't know, whatever happens in somebody's signature that it suddenly gets stretched. I feel like you're unfortunately preaching to the choir with me and Natalie. We're both like, yes, <laughs> please. <laughs> I don't, like, my neck will hurt. <laughs> Perhaps in Go. A Chrome plugin that just truncates things for you. Yeah. Perhaps in Go, but I think if you go to Java, you know, the things are long there. Yeah, 100 characters is just the function name. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. I feel like that one was a good one, but like, if we have time, Natalie, I want to hear another one. <laughs> yeah. I want us to get like an unpopular one from you. Oh my God. What was the other one that you were thinking about saying that you cheekily in your mind were like, no, I'm not going to say that. No, I think this one's like the unpopular kind of popular. Okay. I mean, I see a lot happening, so perhaps it's unpopular. Return new is wrong, period, right? You have to wrap the errors and add more context, always. I cannot count how many times I had to go to the code and dig deep and deep and deep to discover where this error came from. Because I, you know, it's like when you get like a, you're trying to write to the disk and get an error. You get something like, I got one, too many columns in the address. You're like, this is finally the address. How are there too many columns? Mm -hmm. right? And then you have to understand where this address was going to be used, which method it was. And then, oh yeah, on this context, there are too many columns. But they didn't have this information. So return you is wrong. You have to wrap your errors. Now you don't have an excuse. You have error wrapping on the standard library. So I think wrapping errors will be an unpopular opinion. Yeah. I feel like this, this second one is going to probably be more unpopular. Yeah. Because a lot of people just return. Yeah. Error. Interesting. That's one of the things that I look for requests. I was like, dude, could you wrap that? <laughs> and then it goes back on that. If it's my repo, my code, I might say like, no. Now, when I say my, please, like my teams, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have this possessive. I think code must be owned by a group and it must be a consensus in the group. But yeah, this is the thing that I'm going to point. Mm -hmm. And it usually if it's an external adding code, more, even more important, like, okay, like your repo, your rules, our repo, our rules, right? So okay, here we wrap, do that. If I'm owning your repo, I play by your rules. I like that one. I'm also having so many more ideas. This always happens when me and you have an episode, Nathalie. I'm like, so many more episode <laughs> ideas. Write them all down. Does your code belong to you or to the world? I mean, on an open source, that's a definitely a question, right? Yeah, also with AI tools that are writing code, that's a question. Yeah. Oh, God, that's, yeah. Who is the true owner of code? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, licensing is interesting for sure with um, Copilot and friends. When the AI put the bug in production, who do you blame? who run the AI, who wrote the AI. Or who reviewed the PR. That's a good one, right? Can AI review a PR? For sure, for sure. <laughs> Would you trust that? I might have used that in the past, yes. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Okay. I'm a big fan of AI and coding. I think um, it's a fun combination. I'm very happy to automate myself out of job. That's good. But I confess I know almost zero about AI and coding, but I'm super interested. Looks 
really interesting to see where is it going. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, both from the side of writing and from the side that's relevant to this episode, which is the reviewing and like uh, explaining and so on. I think in general, AIs, they can see the context and it carries so much information, see patterns and things that we just can't, right? And sometimes someone really experienced can, but they cannot teach it. So there is definitely a lot of value. Yeah, yeah, exactly. About the context in particular. I sense a Twitter poll, Natalie. Would you let an AI review your code? Hmm, maybe this can be my unpopular opinion for this episode. <laughs> I would like not have it just review and say good, bad, but I would use it as uh, something like, uh, here is the code, what does it do? Mm-hmm. Or list the problems and then you know, yeah. read the output and give it a secondary review. Mm-hmm. I think this might end up being a popular opinion. True. Now you've explained it and want us over to your side, I feel like it will be popular. Yeah. Okay, my next Chrome plugin. Each episode is like 15 (laughs) other ideas, yeah. (laughs) Summarize this PR for me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this has been fun and this has been inspiring. Uh, Anderson, thanks a lot for joining us and uh, sparing some of your time at GopherCon UK. Thank you very much for having me. It was really good. I'm really happy. Thank you so much. We're going to have to get you back on for the Who Owns Our Code episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would love it. It's a plan. And everybody, I hope you will also join us. And thanks for joining us this time. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right. That is go time for this week. Thanks for listening. Now is the best time to subscribe if you haven't yet. Head to GoTime.fm for all the ways. And if you are a regular GoTime listener, check out our membership program. Directly support our work, save yourself some time by ditching the ads, and get bonuses like exclusive content and free stickers. Check it out at changelog.com slash plus plus. Thanks again to our partners at Fastly for CDNing for us, to Fly.io for serving up our app, to the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder for these dope beats, and to you for being part of the GoTime community. We appreciate you. That is all for this week. We'll talk to you next time on GoTime.